Hello everyone, and if you'll give me just a moment, I have the great pleasure of recommending a tremendous and long-standing companion in history podcasting to you, Scott Chesworth and the Ancient World Podcast. Scott started around the same time as me in our slowly growing community of the time, and his was one of those that immediately stood out. He makes the subject as clear and complete as the sources allow, he's authoritative measured, and it's such a fascinating topic. So, I heartily recommend it to you, and here is Scott to tell you just a little more. Do you love Greek and Roman history, but also want to learn about all the ancient civilizations that came before them? Then The Ancient World is the podcast for you. You'll hear about the Sumerians, Akkadians, Babylonians, Assyrians, Hittites, and ancient Egyptians, right down through the Persians, Greeks, and Romans. You can find it all right here, and it's sometimes even funny. So check out the Ancient World Podcast wherever you get your pods or at ancientworldpodcast.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England at a Gallop, King of Britain. This episode covers the same period as the detailed episodes 336 to 349, which is very broadly 1615 to 1625. Now, at a Gallop is designed for a couple of reasons. You might want to take a faster, more summarised route through the period, or you might use it as a refresher or framework to help you sort out the contents of the detailed episodes that preceded it in your mind. If neither are what you want, you just don't happen to listen to this at all. You may have found episodes 336 to 349 just exactly to your liking. And it has to be said that this at a gallop excludes some lovely cultural stuff. Specifically, three episodes on English Renaissance theatre, Shakespeare, Johnson, the Cyrenicals, and all that stuff, which are in episodes 344 to 346. And it excludes two episodes on a tremendous era of architecture with the great prodigy houses, town development, and Hoskins' wonderful theory of the great rebuilding of vernacular building. All of those in episode 348 and 349. It would be a shame to miss them. But look, At A Gallop is here if you want it, and the world is your lobster. This week, we're going to look at the last ten years of James's reign up until his death. We'll start with the British plantations of Ireland and the intentions with which they were established, then talk about James's visit to Scotland and the growing support for Arminianism and distrust of radical Protestants. And we're going to hear about one of the most horrendous outbreaks of war and violence across Europe, which will shape foreign policy and domestic policies, including the extraordinary story of the Knight's Adventure. Now, I read a very good article in the Pappy this morning about how important balanced and shared history is to the process of healing and building stronger, happier societies. 
The writer's theme was that, in his view, people still take sides over the history of Northern Ireland and each glorify their own narratives rather than genuinely developing and accepting an holistic, balanced view that seeks to understand all perspectives. This seems like a very strong argument to me. However, to illustrate something in this week's episode, I might make one quibble. The article talked about English activities in Ireland. So let me point out that the impact of James's enthusiasm for the Ulster plantations was very much a British policy. The first act of British as opposed to English or Scottish colonisation as it happens. And it involved English, Scots, Welsh and indeed Irish while we're at it. The background, though, was the Elizabethan and very much English conquest of Ireland, which we talked about in episodes 303, 304 and 318, the Age of Atrocities, as it has been dubbed by one historian. At the end of which, after a surprisingly generous settlement for Tyrone and his allies, the leading earls of Ulster nonetheless found they couldn't live with it and they fled or rebelled and then fled in 1609, the flight of the earls. As rebels, their lands were, as was traditional of course, forfeit to the crown. And so, early in his reign, James had a windfall to do with as he would. Now, rather than allocating the land to some deserving lords, as was the normal run of things, James decided to dramatically extend the policy that had started under the Tudors and Queen Mary to establish plantations of model societies based on the British model of the way the world should be run. We might as well get it out there. The basic attitude that lay behind this was that the native Gaelic Irish were barbarous and backwards, that they didn't manage and work the land as they should and therefore were poor and uncivilised and addicted to Catholicism. So they were in urgent need of a civilising process. In 1615, one English colonist reported the Irish to be more barbarous and more brutish in their costumes and demeanours than in any part of the world that is known. This reflected also long-standing lowland Scottish attitudes towards their own Gaelic culture in the Highlands. John of Forden in the 14th century, for example, described Highlanders as a savage and untamed nation, rude and independent and exceedingly cruel. James and the English were obsessed with the idea that Ireland was a backdoor to Spanish and Catholic invasion that needed to be secured. And the answer was to bring all the countries in the North Atlantic archipelago together into one harmonious set of beliefs. Different peoples and different languages, but living in harmony under one king, one law, one style of administration in shared prosperity and indeed one religion. This philosophy was inherently racially based in Ireland. The stated aim was for the Irish to be civilised, which meant in practice Gaelic law and customs were to be deleted and replaced by the majority British social and economic model. To James's mind, the aim was not terrorisation, violence, bloodshed against the native Irish. He didn't expect or intend in any way to remove them it was to bring peace, prosperity and freedom from the tyranny, as he saw it, of the Gaelic system of lordship. As he himself wrote, the aim was a mixed conversation of different nations, 
one amongst another, to help induce obedience, civility and Christian policy into those parts, to the welfare and tranquility of the whole realm. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I urge you to go to episode 336 for more detail, but in brief, the mechanism was this. Major lords and institutions were offered land in Ulster if, in return, they would populate those lands with colonists. There was a standard model behind the colonisation, which would be the attempted template for colonisation in the North Americas as well, until the education of practical experience resulted in something way more varied. So, the major undertakers and servitors, as they were called, would establish towns to help commerce flourish and encourage economic independence. There was clearly awareness that this wasn't going to be popular locally, at least initially, so the servitors would need to make provision for defence as well. The settlements would be logically laid out with buildings, equipment, careful allocation of land between arable, woodland and pasture, all designed according to the British social and economic lowland model. It was understood that the Irish would have a role only in a few of the settlements and that in many they would be actively excluded. That didn't mean the Irish were to be left without means of sustenance. The sadly faulty understanding was that Ireland was a largely uncultivated wilderness and therefore anyone thrown off these lands would be compensated with land elsewhere, which of course they'd then begin to cultivate with the new model in mind. And so all would live happily ever after. I do not want you to suppose for a moment that I am claiming that British imperialism in Ireland was not also driven by gold and the desire for profit, any less than it was elsewhere in the growing empire. Because it absolutely was. Those undertakers and servitors fully expected to line their pockets through this process. But nor did they see it as a zero-sum game. They did also see it as offering riches for all. And there were in fact many, the City of London Corporation in particular, who realised that fulfilling the demands James was setting was onerous, expensive, risky and highly speculative and took part only because James pushed them into it. Because as it happens, there was never anywhere near enough settlers for that to happen anyway. Native Irish continued to form a substantial part of the new settlements and indeed major Irish landowners also took part. British undertakers and servitors received about 217,000 acres. Irish received 94,000, one of whom was Randall MacDonnell, a major Irish Catholic landowner in his own right who acquired a plantation of 4,500 acres. Another was Philem O'Neill, of whom you'll hear more in 1641. The London companies received 45,000 acres. London was very important in this process as far as the king was concerned. It was going to be very expensive to do all this undertaking and their money was crucial. The government wanted them to rebuild the towns of Derry and Coleraine to create more trade and wealth. So, they were allocated the entire county of Coleraine and parts of Tyrone and Antrim to create a new county called Londonderry and a contentious name, was born. And then 74,000 acres went to the church to foster its potential to spread the Protestant word, and 12,400 to Trinity College Dublin, the university that had been set up in Ireland by the English in 1592. Although recruitment never reached the hoped-for levels, by 1641 about 100,000 British may have resettled in Ireland, whether 
part of the official schemes or from informal migration, about 30,000 Scots and 70,000 English and some Welsh. It was coincidentally a time of prosperity and growth generally for the Irish population and economy. The population grew to 1.4 million from 1 million. Although we might think the strategy would obviously cause trouble, there wasn't actually much sign of it at the time, and for the next 30 years. So Francis Bacon was complacently able to write that Ireland hath come in and been reclaimed from desolation and desert to population and plantation, and from savage and barbarous custom to humanity and civility. But closer and cleverer observers knew better. One observer predicted the Old English and Native Irish would unite in the face of this onslaught and the next rebellion, whensoever it shall happen, would threaten more danger to the state than any other that had preceded it because the revolt is likely to be general. Time will tell who was right, A. Now, all things considered, I think it may be best to talk about religion next. I'm going to therefore leave all the fun stuff about dynasty, the buffoonery of favourites and all that, to later. Not that religion isn't fun, you understand. But generally, I'd contend there are a limited number of gags in the Bible. Although, on that, I listened to a podcast the other day and our good and excellent Archbishop of Canterbury seemed to be suggesting I may be wrong in that. Answers on a postcard with best Bible gags. Anyway, religion. I need to tie this into the history of Scotland, so let me start there rather than in the pulpit. Now, obviously, the Scots had seen the departure of their king with some trepidation. They feared marginalisation. They feared rule by the English. They feared becoming a province. And also, just practically, the removal of the king and his court from Edinburgh meant the loss of a local centre of patronage cash politics. Now, in many ways, some of their fears were not realised, or not immediately at least. James personally knew the magnates that ruled Scottish politics and society and had done for some time, and in his chief ministers in Scotland, he was to prove very fortunate in Dunbar and Dunfermline, two lords who knew when to follow their king's directives and when to, you know, select, file and forget. In addition, James also kept his Scottish and English privy councils very separate, as would his son, and he was therefore largely advised by Scots. James was indeed to boast that he'd ruled Scotland by the pen from London just as successfully as he had from Edinburgh. But that wasn't quite true. There is no doubt the centre of gravity moved, and Edinburgh suffered, and in addition, his experience would not be typical. His successor would have been born in Scotland, but not really lived there as an adult and had none of the contacts, feel and affinity with his institutions and culture. However, in 1617, James did indeed travel north back to his home. He had promised to do so regularly back in 1603, in which he fibbed. 1617 was in fact the only time he did it. But look, in general, his visit went very well. Everyone was pleased to see him, he spent a pile of cash, and there were parties. And he got involved. However, like the aliens in the War of the Worlds, he left deep in the ground the seeds of rebellion that would one day spring to life when activated by the signal from above. I think I repeat myself when I say Scottish religious beliefs developed with a much more strictly Calvinist bent, to the point 
The many aspects of ceremony that remained in the English church were considered pretty much indistinguishable from Catholicism, and in many parts of lowland Scotland, bishops were viewed with horror. Church hierarchy itself was considered a popish tyranny, and a Presbyterian model without church hierarchy was longed for in many regions. Now, during his visit, James refused resolutely to accept such things as he always had, and he enforced on the General Assembly of the Kirk a regime that would be enshrined in law as the Five Articles of Perth. These articles did things that reinforced the role of bishops of hierarchy and ceremony, such as bowing at the name of Jesus. And it re-established traditional festivals such as Christmas, which many strict Calvinists in Scotland considered simply a Catholic invention. Now, James had the good sense not to push his bishops to enforce the five articles of Perth too rigorously, that they should allow a good deal of leeway in day-to-day -day practice from parish to parish and diocese to diocese. But those five articles were there. Let's just imagine for a moment, if a less sensitive king were to come to the throne, well, who knew what might happen then? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, sign them all, sign them all. On his way back south, James happened to pass through Lancashire, and the locals were very excited at this. In a timeless conversational gambit, one of them might well have said to James, you don't get many kings around here. That is not a Lancashire accent, by the way. Also, the county was notoriously unreformed. The local MP, a good Puritan, was rather horrified by their adherence to the fun and festivals of the old days, dancing, piping, bowling and all that, which is fine, but they did it on the Lord's Day, probably because that was their day off. So, the local GP had issued a series of blood-curdling bans. So it was that James found a petition thrust into his grubby mitts as he passed, begging for their king to set the record straight on these matters and restore the good old days. Now, James's attitudes were beginning to move somewhat, as they do when you get older. Us older types are much more tolerant, much more free and easy than the often very purest young'uns, taught as we have been in the experience of the university of life. And the target of James's religious exasperation was increasingly the puritanicals, the godly, rather than those of a Catholic persuasion. And Jimmy was livid with the local JP for taking the law into his own hands. He, the king, he was the only person allowed to make pronouncements such as these. The result was the 1617 Book of Sports, a proclamation by the king about what was allowable on the Sabbath, and dancing and having fun very much were. Only a few things were prohibited. Interludes. These were local plays which could turn subversive bull-baiting, which was mm, horrid, and interestingly, bowling. Now, bowling is indeed the root of much evil, though probably because it's in the 17th century, bowling was essentially like darts in the 20th century, an excuse to down an unfeasible quantity of booze at the same time. Puritans fumed, not necessarily about drinking, but they drew the line at drunkenness and disorder. The proclamation specifically mentioned Puritans and precise people, and it forms part of a general trend by James towards a position where he associated Puritanism, the godly as they thought of themselves, with disloyalty and sedition. 
Very probably his return to Scotland had accentuated this. Where the Protestantism was more radical, where the teaching, teachings of Buchanan and the theory of two kingdoms and resistance to the king with the wrong religion, was strongest. The reign, therefore, saw a gradual but perceptible move towards favouring the more Elizabethan form of Protestantism. The kind of debate about further religious reform of the church, which was beloved of Puritans, was forbidden and punished. Recusancy laws were suspended or only half-heartedly implemented. And Arminian bishops began to be preferred for appointments over Calvinists. In the background, the career of William Lord, for example, the arch-Arminian, was going very well. James had a bit of a liking for Arminians because they were very hot on social hierarchy, on authority and the absolute power of monarchs. James liked that better than resistance theory. So by the end of the reign, there was a strong body of Arminian bishops who would be ready when William Lord and Charles called in the 1630s. As in Scotland, with good sense and sensitivity, there shouldn't be a problem with this, and James could be a canny political operator, and he would leave dogmatism to one side when required, but the seed was sown. Puritans complained bitterly about all this nicey-nicey towards supporters of whom they considered the Antichrist. Which will bring us to foreign affairs, oddly, for foreign policy also comes to be seen by many citizens through a very religious lens, while it was seen by the king through a very traditional dynastic lens. And that meant there was conflict, ladies and gentlemen, kind of dissonance. But before we get to all that political stuff... I'd like to literally just mention a few cultural and economic things so I can point you in the right direction to find out more. I don't have space to expand on them here in At A Gallop, though I did mention them at the start, I should say. So I should mention theatre and just remind you that the days of English Renaissance theatre are not over. Past their glory days, maybe past their peak, but theatre is still vibrant and the likes of Ben Jonson still ply to their trade. It is also the glory days of Inigo Jones, who is apparently one of our great architects, though personally not a great fan of his style, but I know nothing, so I must just toe the line. In 1616, the Queen's House in London was part of a much larger project that wasn't complete until 1635. And while I'm on building stuff, I desperately want to mention that around 1500 to 1700, we are in a period the lovely W.G. Hoskins described as the great rebuilding. Cheap brick, technology, wealth meant that if you had land, your living space was transformed with chimneys, upstairs, downstairs, that sort of thing. It is a lovely topic. Find out more about the transformation of England's built environment in episodes 348 and 349. There's, a, there's pictures and stuff I put on the website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk, that, if I say so myself, was pretty darned hot. Anne of Denmark was possibly a greater cultural influence than James, as it happens, and both Johnson and Jones would work their trade, often together, in the production of the Queen's great masks which sought to extol the powers and virtues of the monarch and the court as the seat of virtue and the font of stability. The reach of masks, though, it has to be said, was a shadow of things like new sheets and libels that spread gossip about the royal court's dodgy religious credentials 
and the scandalous behaviour and politics there, as we heard last time. And then, by the way, there's an event I forgot to mention in the call podcasts, to my shame, which was the career of William Harvey. Now, when I were a lad, it was simply said that he discovered the circulation of the blood. These days we're much more careful, of course, and understand that science doesn't really work in that way, and as Newton would famously say, we stand on the shoulders of giants, and that one of the great things about the 16th century had been the development of an international discourse and community about natural philosophy. However, in 1628 it appears that it was indeed Harvey, physician to James by this stage, who was indeed the first to complete the description of the mechanisms and circulation of the blood. That is sadly all I have to say on that, but along with Francis Bacon and his contribution to ideas on the scientific method, England was at least making a contribution to the advancement of knowledge. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Right, let's get away from all that earnest stuff. Let's do some bunburying and have some fun. Let's do dynasty, politics, court, foreign affairs. First, a couple of people. The death of the aforementioned Queen Anne in 1619, for one. Over the last years of her life, she became rather estranged from James and away from being rather a force at court and instead became isolated. She converted to Catholicism along the way also, and that may have been one of the reasons for her declining influence, but another could have been the rise of James's last and favourite favourite, George Villiers, the artist become known as the Duke of Buckingham. Actually, Anne had encouraged Villiers and rather liked him, though she did call him her dog, which might have been intended as a term of endearment and a bit of fun, but it's not one I think I'd enjoy, much as I love dogs. Anyway, George Villiers. You would not have said at birth that George was destined for success and vast political power at court. He didn't come from a particularly grand family, although he wasn't lowly. But he had two factors to thank for his rise, in addition to his own multiple talents. The first was his mum, Mary Villiers. She was ambitious for her son. She pushed him hard. She made sure he was taught all the skills needed by the consummate courtier. George loved his mother in return and stayed close to her throughout his life. The second factor were the vagaries of faction at court. To explain by introducing the two factions at court to you very briefly, in broad terms, of course. In one corner, we have the Patriot faction. The Patriots believe that Protestantism should be at the heart of everything, foreign policy, domestic policy, and that Parliament was the crucial partner of the Crown and strong advocates of Protestantism to boot. In the other corner, on the other hand, were the pro-Spanish party, far less concerned about religion, much more religiously pluralistic, more traditionally focused on dynasty, the power of the crown and its glory. So here's how it worked. The favourite at the time, before his fall, as we heard last time, was Robert Carr, Earl of Somerset, husband of Francis Howard, a pro-Spanish man. The Patriots wanted rid of him. 
And so they trailed George Villiers in front of James, just 21, full of vigour, beauty and the health of youth. Charming, graceful, blooming. It worked. Even before Carr's conviction, Villiers was replacing him in James's trust and affection. We don't have the space to recount the details of Villiers' rise to power, but the long and short, by 1620, the king's favour, gifts and ennoblement had meant that Villiers had outstripped the power and influence of the Patriot faction and operated absolutely independently of them. People had become master. He controlled access to James. To get something done, you always needed Villiers on board. But he never took over decision-making or made James feel subservient. James made the decisions. James was quite capable of overturning Villiers' view as he required. And in return, George never forgot the lesson and the crucial factor of what it meant to be a favourite. That all he had came from the king. And that as the king had given, so the king could take away. Favourites don't get a good press, by and large, and Villiers is no different. But he's not an unimpressive man. His career is marked by a desire to fulfil that Renaissance ambition he shared with Thomas More, Francis Bacon and the like. The demand of service to the best of his ability. But he also became, of course, immensely, towering, cascadingly rich. He acquired York Place in London as one place, Wolsey's Old Palace, and did it up with such grandeur and expense that when Inigo Jones saw it, he fell to his knees in wonder. George Villiers was as much a wonder to the young Charles as he was to his father James. For Charles, Villiers must have been like a fantastic older brother, full of confidence where the young Charles was rather inarticulate, lacking in confidence, struggled with a stammer. So the three of them, James, Charles, Villiers, became close. George was James's steeny, as beautiful as the angel St Stephen, James once said. Charles was baby Charles, and James was dear dad, all slightly vomit-inducing, I have to say. Other courtiers were in no way excluded, but Villiers was supreme. So before we get to the politics, let us then have the dramatic events that would drive foreign policy for the rest of the reign and part of the one beyond it, in fact. In 1619, the people of Bohemia defenestrated the representative of their Catholic prince and looked for a Protestant champion to become King of Bohemia instead. They selected... Frederick of the Rhine Palatinate. And he considered this, although lots of people said to him, Don't do it, you'll be crushed. But he was not at home to Mr and Mrs Doom and Gloom, so he said, "Mm, sure. And within months he had indeed been crushed at the Battle of White Mountain in 1620 by the Catholic Emperor, who was understandably miffed at having his local rep defenestrated. So quickly and completely did disaster follow triumph that Frederick and Elizabeth, his wife, became known as the Winter King and the Winter Queen. And the Thirty Years' War was on, as the Catholic Emperor enthusiastically tried to bring the Protestant German princes all under his control again, reconvert Germany to Catholicism and conquer the Rhine Palatinate while he was about it. So there are a couple of points about this. Firstly... The British may not have been directly involved, but they were emotionally engaged in spades. This was the godly against the Antichrist. 
and as the most Protestant nation, they wanted to do their bit. The other thing is that the Winter Queen, Elizabeth, was James's daughter, Charles's sister. Elizabeth Stuart is without doubt worth her own episode, as Craig has mentioned to me, but not here, sadly. In brief, she was highly educated in natural history, geography, theology, languages, writing, music and dancing, was fluent in several languages, with a passion for literature and a thorough-going Protestant. She would have a large family, was an energetic and very forceful advocate for her family and prospects, despite spending 40 years in exile, often in very tight conditions. Now, James had deeply disapproved of Frederick's actions, actually. One does not simply depose rightful monarchs because their envoys get defenestrated. But as the war progressed badly for the Protestants, the Rhine Palatinate was indeed itself taken over. James was determined to strain every nerve to see his daughter and son-in-law reinstated in the Palatinate, at least. Probably not Bohemia, which had always been a bit of a cheek in his view. But James was deeply unhappy about using war as a means to do so. As much as kings could be at the time, he was pretty pacifist. Diplomacy, then, would have to do the job. Right from the start, then, there is a basic dissonance between king and subject. The English thought that James should raise an army, declare war, ride into battle in glittery armour and a flag of St George, and save Protestantism. James, on the other hand, thought he could persuade the Holy Roman Emperor, to do the right thing through diplomacy. He was also clear that this sort of stuff was the business of kings, the arcana of majesty, not the business of oiks, a.k.a. subjects. Kings did not ask their king, or indeed parliament, for strategy advice because they didn't have a direct line to God. Parliament and the people's role was to ask how much when the king asked for money to achieve his arcana. James became so annoyed at the chatter and libels and news sheets on the streets demanding war for the Protestant cause that he issued a proclamation telling the English not to intermeddle by pen or by speech with causes of state and secrets of empire, either at home or abroad. He should maybe have called himself Canute, trying, as he was, to hold back an unstoppable tide of Protestant fear and passion. James's diplomatic objective, then, was to persuade the Habsburg emperor in Austria to give the Palatinate back, please, if you wouldn't mind. He would do this by persuading their relatives, the Spanish Habsburg monarchs, to put pressure on the imperial Habsburgs to hand it back to the Winter King and Queen. To achieve that, he would use both carrot and he would use stick. The carrot was Charles's body, and oh, what a carrot, eh? He would marry Charles to the Spanish princess, the Infanta Ana Maria. The price would be a a massive dowry from Spain that would pay off all James's debts and make him free of Parliament and subsidise endless hunting trips and soft feather beds, and b return of the Palatinate to his daughter Elizabeth. The stick was war. If the Spanish did not agree to the marriage, James would raise an army and come and kick the imperial bottom. I don't believe the Spanish ever had any intention of arranging what became known as the Spanish match between Anna Maria and Charles. But the hope and prospect of it was constantly 
trailed by the Spanish ambassador to keep England out of the war. And since James had no money, the ten-ton Spanish guerrilla had no real fear of having sand kicked in their face by the English or seeing the imperial buttocks given more than a, a bit of a pat by the British king. There was effectively no stick, hardly even a twiglet. So James needed his stick, and for that he needed money to convincingly threaten war. And despite seven happy years without Parliament, it was becoming clear by 1621 that James would have to call another one. Curses! Because his finances were a mess, and that is despite the work of an unpopular financial wizard, Lionel Cranfield, Earl of Middlesex, who had worked miracles and had, of course, made himself immensely rich at the same time. But not even Cranfield could stem the flood of James's financial incontinence. The expectations of the 1621 Parliament were sky-high. When it opened, the streets were rammed with people. James would declare war on Spain. Parliament would vote generous subsidies to help the English would go to war and crush the Emperor and the Catholic threat. Cry Harry! And all that. The Parliament started well. It quickly voted a provisional subsidy for the King. But it was only provisional. Because none of the problems that had poisoned the 1614 adult Parliament had gone away. Parliament was still furious at the lack of royal financial control. They still objected to the tactics the Crown was using to raise money without parliamentary consent, customs impositions, and the sale of those hateful monopolies in particular. And they were absolutely furious at the King's refusal to make a commitment to a Protestant crusade. And it was these things that they duly debated, talked about and discussed. As they were doing that, James was hopping around in fury at Whitehall like Rumpelstiltskin, livid that Parliament was pretending to have the right to debate foreign policy, the arcana of kings. You could hear the screams of, show me the money, all the way from Whitehall like some demented Tom Cruise in that film, whatever it's called. But Parliament would make its point. Parliament would make the king recognise that their opinion mattered. Now you have to realise just what a change this is. Parliament had been about supporting the monarch and achieving consensus all through the Tudor dynasty. Now it was flexing muscles James didn't believe they should even have. I must mention another name here. Edward Cook, an eminent lawyer, MP and jurist whose name will ever be associated with one of the most important constitutional developments of the next reign, the Bill of Rights. A brilliant lawyer who had a firm belief that the king was subject to the law and that Magna Carta was not, in fact, a peace treaty, as one podcaster would have it, but was a guarantor of the rights of the English. Eminent and brilliant, not entirely likeable, responsible for persecuting Walter Raleigh, amongst others, forcing his daughter into a marriage she hated, at one stage by tying her to a bed, of whom, when he died, his wife was to say, we shall not see his like again, by grace of God. Which I think qualifies as a bona fide burn. This, though, was Cook's moment. He was determined that people would be held to account for the excesses of government. And it was the monopolists where he focused the attentions of the commons first. We've talked about monopolies a wonderful way of raising revenue and rewarding courtiers as far as the king was concerned, but destructive of trade and prosperity as far as everyone else was concerned. 
The Commons went after one of the biggest offenders to make their point. He was duly condemned, though before he could be prosecuted, he lifted his hose and legged it. But Cook now set his sights higher. There were bigger fish to fry, the biggest. The King's most high-profile ministers and supporters, the Lord High Chancellor Francis Bacon and the King's favourite George Villiers, elevated now to the heights of society as Duke of Buckingham. But James would not permit the Commons to have Buckingham's scalp. There's a lovely piece of theatre in the House of Lords, where Buckingham knelt before his king, and he swore he was innocent of corruption in front of all the peers assembled, and James, in front of them all, lifted him to his feet in gracious acceptance. The message was clear, hands off my buck. But for the sake of the subsidy and for getting his hands on all that lovely money, James was quite prepared to sacrifice something. So, he sacrificed a few monopolies and indeed sacrificed his loyal and faithful servant, Francis Bacon. Such are the brutal realities of politics. To get his man, Edward Cook revived an ancient medieval procedure called impeachment. Now, the way impeachment worked is that the Commons accused the defendant, the Lords then tried him, and the beauty of it was that impeachment did not require the same level of proof as a court of law. If the members voted because they believed it, so be it. We will hear much more of impeachment, a very handy, quasi-legal form of political assassination. Poor Francis Bacon, horrified at his king's desertion of him, he jumped before he was pushed and he resigned. James now expected his subsidy from the Commons so he could threaten the Spanish with war if they did not offer an alliance and a marriage. But the Commons were not done. They next demanded religious reforms back towards Calvinism, away from this Arminianism. This was just too much. James blew his top, called all of Parliament to Whitehall to see him, instructed them publicly in no uncertain terms that religion was his province, nothing to do with Parliament. While I assume the MPs slunk from Whitehall with tails suitably located between their legs, pretending to look appropriately guilty, once back at St Stephen's Chapel, the home of the Commons, the flame of defiance burned once more from the ashes of censure like a phoenix. The result was the protestation of December 1621 from the Commons, where Cook and his allies roundly defended and proclaimed the ancient privilege of Parliament to freely debate exactly what they chose without fear of prosecution or persecution. Well, that did it. James Lidd flipped. In a rage, he dissolved Parliament and sent the whole lot of them packing, snarling that he would govern according to the good of the common weal, but not according to the common will. In so doing, the subsidy bill died. He lost any chance of filling his coffers, lost any chance of wiping out his humongous debt, lost any chance of taking war to the Spanish. The Spanish ambassador was rubbing his hands with glee and wrote home with what he called the best news in a century. So that's that then. The Spanish faction have lost the Patriots with their plans for Dutch alliance and fighting for the Palatinate, maybe looking at a French alliance too. They would surely now rule the roost in the Privy Council. Well, you might think that and it would make sense. 
the English had no leverage, and the Spanish surely would have absolutely no intention of throwing a princess not only to a heretic, but also a country without any power to help them win their war. But if you are thinking these things, well, you have not factored in the ambition, chutzpah, and a general romantic effervescence of the knight's adventurer. I speak, of course, of the gallant Duke of Buckingham and the young buck, Prince Charles. Early one morning, just as the day was dawning, and presumably fair maids were just working themselves up to roll in the dew or sing tragic songs as they did back then, two heavily disguised travellers took a boat from Dover and set off across the plains of France and the mountains of the Pyrenees down through the Pyrianchals and late one night banged on the door of the English ambassador in Madrid. This, in my humble opinion, could be the maddest story in English royal history, bar none. Buckingham and the Prince of Wales, heir to the throne of England, mind you, had resolved that love would conquer everything, overthrow all considerations of tawdry power diplomacy, par and pishore to tawdry power diplomacy, the Spanish Infanta would swoon at the appearance of her thoroughly buffed knight-errant, fall into his arms and they would be married. Well, she didn't, and they weren't. The whole mad venture crashed and the whole mad venture burned. And that is all I have to say about this fantastic corner of English history, but you can find out more about it in episode 341 if you have a mind. Well, while they were trying to wow the Spanish court and Infanta, news of course got out back in Blighty. James, the poor lad, was worried sick that his Steenie and baby Charles had put themselves into the hands of a foreign power. But more importantly, the vast majority of the English found themselves a corner and started laying eggs. An absolute Storm of comment. Libels, ballads, news sheets, gossip exploded across the country. Their prince was in the hands of the Spanish, or just as bad, their Protestant prince would marry a Catholic and the Palatinate and the Protestant cause in Europe would be lost forever. There was panic not only at the disco, but also in the streets, in the fields, in the pubs, in the pulpits. There was, in short, a bit of a to-do. So, when baby Charles and Steenie reappeared in October 1623, unmarried in a pub in Godalming, of all places, once the parish of the Norman Archbishop Ranulph Flambar, incidentally. England went absolutely potty. Now, when London goes potty, a town made principally of wood, I should point out, it is to booze, bonfires and bells to which they turn. Booze and bells, fine. Bonfire, frankly suicidal. But hey, you only live once. Charles and the Buckster were also on fire. On fire with fury and humiliation at their failure and rejection at the hands of the perfidious Hispania, who they now realised had been stringing them along for a decade or more. As far as Spain was concerned, the English were food, not friends. Love could not conquer all, the cruelest lesson in life. The last couple of years of James's reign are really quite remarkable. So the story is that Charles and Buckingham are for the first and probably only time in their lives wildly popular with the general populace. Suddenly they are the darling of the people. Because when they returned, 
they made it quite clear that as far as they're concerned, Spain must be punished. England must take up the cudgels and fight for the Protestant cause in Europe. They must raise money and men to do so. Poor James is now ill, old and tired, and I am sorry to say that Charles and Buckingham rather browbeat him into calling a new parliament. In his heart, James was still committed to the Spanish match and to the cause of a peaceful solution to the Palatinate, despite the evidence of that strategy's ineffectiveness. But Charles would not have it. The Spanish faction were out, the Patriots were back. At one point, James tearfully wrote, Do you want to commit me to war in my old age and make me break with Spain? Yep, said baby Charles and the beautiful Steenie. So we then have the extraordinary sight of a parliament where all the frictions of the previous decade were completely pushed aside, forgotten, in a welter of patriotic religious fervour, a national commitment to meet the threat from Catholic Spain and Catholic Europe head-on and stand with their Protestant allies, the Dutch, Germans, Swedes and Danes. Politics were dramatically polarised and very significantly the Catholic threat was not simply seen as an external issue. To many in the country the Catholic threat also came from James's court, from the king, supposedly the very heart of nationhood and defender of his people. The country and parliament were acting together now to correct the corruptions and dodgy religious backsliding of king and court. And at the vanguard was the prince. Here was the sight of a prince using Parliament as a tool to browbeat and change the policy of his father, the King. It is a first, gentle listeners, it is a first, but it will not be the last. It is a sign that, far from being an occasional consultative body, Parliament was beginning to replace the King as the voice of the people in the eyes of some. I think we can agree that's significant, can we not? All in favour say aye. Opponents of the new strategy for war were now swept aside, in some case with brutal unfairness. Lionel Cranfield, the Lord Treasurer, had held the precarious finances of the state together in the face of all James's incontinence, and he was now firmly opposed to war because war costs more than a bob or two. So now once more, this newly rediscovered tool of impeachment was rolled out. Cranfield was convicted, removed, fined. A subsidy was then indeed granted by Parliament. James rather gave way and let all of this happen as he descended towards his last breath. But his political antennae did not fail him, and he warned his son and his favourite that they were playing with fire here, telling them with quite spooky foresight, You are a fool! You are making a rod with which you will be scourged yourself. You will have your belly full of impeachments. Wow! James VI and I, not an idiot. How right he was. Charles would indeed. But no plot spoilers. A force was indeed recruited under an experienced captain, Count Mansfield, and a collaboration worked out with France at the same time as which a marriage agreement was made to marry England and France through the bodies of Charles and Henrietta Maria, of which more next time. 
The expedition, though, was an unmitigated disaster. This time it was the case of Perfidius Francia, who backed out halfway through, having always intended to misuse the army for their own nefarious ends. Mansfield's massively expensive army rotted and died of disease outside a Dutch city. By this time, March 1625, James I and VI was dead at the age of 58. His was an interesting reign, and much passed over, I think, in the annals of history. Generally, the lad gets quite a good press from modern historians, who stress the work he did to bring the elites of England, Wales and Scotland together and create the idea of Britain, who was politically astute enough to never quite let political friction with Parliament or religious friction get out of hand and out of his control. He was in many ways a man of attractive attitudes, personable, informal, surprisingly religious tolerant given his upbringing, able to learn from mistakes in which I might also put his increasing scepticism about witchcraft, and a man genuinely and deeply sceptical about the benefits of war, a man of peace. But look, I don't think we should go overboard, should we? Here is the case for the prosecution. There are a series of trends that start under James, which only a consummate statesman and political operator would be able to deal with. Religiously, Scotland, England and Wales and Ireland are diverging. James left a little package of poison in Scotland with the Articles of Perth, while he allowed the Calvinist harmony of the Church of England to slip through an excessive fear of Puritans and the overpromotion of Arminian bishops. Although he did not invent the strategy of plantation and initiated the plantations of Ulster with the best of intentions, they nonetheless created a very dangerous source of future conflict as many native Irish lost land and status in Ulster. And his religious pluralism, the behaviour of his court and his fractious parliaments, created a fundamental shift in attitude. For the first time, there were some English people for whom it was their law, county leaders and parliament that best represented their sense of nationhood, rather than a king who had become to seem corrupt and not in tune with the values of his people. As news of James's death spread, one of his Scottish magnates remarked, As he lived in peace, so did he die in peace, and I pray God our King Charles I may follow him. Well, next time. We will see how the first stage of Charles's reign goes. We will hear how he tries to establish a working relationship with Parliament, which, to be fair, doesn't go brilliantly, and understand a bit about the direction of his religious policy and feelings. Before I leave, though, let me remind you of the core episodes. Can I also remind you that you can listen to all my podcasts free of adverts and access over 100 hours of extra shedcasts simply by becoming a member of the historyofengland.co.uk. Also, that means you'll support my work and make me happy, which is not everything, but nor is it nothing. So that's thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Until next time then, here on the History of England at a Gallop, thanks all of you for listening. Good luck and have a great week.
Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.